Chapter 2 Of the Moon Men by Edgar Rice Burroughs This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker Chapter 2 The Hellhounds I had just slipped off my tunic when I heard the baying of the hellhounds close by. I thought they might be getting into the goat pen, so I waited a moment, listening. And then I heard a scream, the scream of a woman in terror. It sounded down by the river near the goat pens, and mingled with it was the vicious growling and barking of the hellhounds. I did not wait to listen longer, but seized my knife and a long staff. I ran out the front door, which was closest, and turned toward the pens in the direction of the hellhounds' deep growlings and the screams of the woman, which were repeated twice. As I neared the pens and my eyes became accustomed to the outer darkness, I made out what appeared to be a human figure resting partially upon the top of one of the sheds that formed a portion of the pen wall. The legs and lower body dangled over the edge of the roof, and I could see three or four hellhounds leaping for it, while another, that had evidently gotten a hold, was hanging to one leg and attempting to drag the figure down. As I ran forward, I shouted at the beasts, and those that were leaping for the figure stopped and turned toward me. I knew something of the temper of these animals, and that I might expect them to charge, for they were quite fearless of man ordinarily. But I ran forward toward them so swiftly and with such determination that they turned, growling, and ran off before I reached them, but not far. The one that had hold of the figure succeeded in dragging it to earth just before I reached them, and then it discovered me and turned, standing over its prey, with wide jaws and terrific fangs menacing me. It was a huge beast, almost as large as a full-grown goat, and easily a match for several men as poorly armed as I. Under ordinary circumstances I should have given it plenty of room, but what was I to do when the life of a woman was at stake? I am an American, not a Calcar. Those swine would throw a woman to the hellhounds to save their own skins, and I had been brought up to revere woman in a world that considered her on par with the cow, the nanny, and the sow, only less valuable since the latter were not the common property of the state. I knew then that death stood very near as I faced that frightful beast, and from the corner of an eye I could see its mates creeping closer. There was no time to think even, and so I rushed in upon the hellhounds with my staff and blade. As I did so, I saw the wide and terrified eyes of a young girl looking up at me from beneath the beast of prey. I had not thought to desert her to her fate before, but after that single glance I could not have done so had a thousand deaths confronted me. As I was almost upon the beast, it sprang from my throat, rising high upon its hind feet and leaping straight as an arrow. My staff was useless, and so I dropped it, meeting the charge with my knife in a bare hand. By luck, the fingers of my left hand found the creature's throat at the first clutch, but the impact of his body against mine hurled me to the ground beneath him, and there, growling and struggling, he sought to close those snapping fangs upon me. Holding his jaws at arm's length, I struck at his breast with my blade, nor did I miss him once. The pain of the wounds turned him crazy, and yet, to my utter surprise, I found I still could hold him, and not that alone but that I could also struggle to my knees, and then to my feet, still holding him at arm's length in my left hand. I had always known that I was muscular, but until that moment I had never dreamed of the great strength that nature had given me. For never before had I had occasion to exert the full measure of my powerful thews. 
It was like a revelation from above, and of a sudden I found myself smiling, and in the instant a miracle occurred. All fear of these hideous beasts dissolved from my brain like thin air, and with it fear of man as well. I, who had been brought out of a womb of fear into a world of terror, who had been suckled and nurtured upon apprehension and timidity. I, Julian the Ninth, at the age of twenty years, became in the fraction of a second utterly fearless of man or beast. It was the knowledge of my great power that did it. That, and perhaps those two liquid eyes that I knew to be watching me. The other hounds were closing in upon me when the creature in my grasp went suddenly limp. My blade must have found its heart. And then the others charged, and I saw the girl upon her feet beside me, my staff in her hands, ready to battle with them. To the roof, I shouted to her. But she did not heed. Instead, she stood her ground, striking a vicious blow at the leader as he came within range. Swinging the dead beast above my head, I hurled the carcass at the others so that they scattered and retreated again. And then I turned to the girl, and without more parley, lifted her in my arms and tossed her lightly to the roof of the goat shed. I could easily have followed to her side and safety had not something filled my brain with an effect similar to that which I imagine must be produced by the vile concoction brewed by the Calcars, in which they drink to excess, while it would mean imprisonment for us to be apprehended with it in our possession. At least, I know that I felt a sudden exhilaration, a strange desire to accomplish wonders before the eyes of this stranger, and so I turned upon the four remaining hellhounds, who had now bunched to renew the attack, and without waiting for them, I rushed toward them. They did not flee, but stood their ground, growling hideously, their hair bristling upon their necks and along their spines, their great fangs bared and slavering. But among them I tore, and by the very impetuosity of my attack I overthrew them. The first sprang to meet me, and him I seized by the neck, and clamping his body between my knees, I twisted his head entirely around until I heard the vertebrae snap. The other three were upon me then, leaping and tearing, but I felt no fear. One by one I took them in my mighty hands, and lifting them high above my head hurled them violently from me. Two only of the hellhounds returned to the attack, and these I vanquished with my bare hands, disdaining to use my blade upon such carrion. It was then that I saw a man running toward me from up the river, and another from our house. The first was Jim, who had heard the commotion and the girl's screams, and the other was my father. Both had seen the last part of the battle, and neither could believe that it was I, Julian, who had done this thing. Father was very proud of me, and Jim was, too, for he had always said that having no son of his own, father must share me with him. And then I turned toward the girl who had slipped from the roof and was approaching us. She moved with the same graceful dignity that was mother's, not at all like the clumsy clods that belonged to the Calcars, and she came straight to me and laid a hand upon my arm. Thank you, she said, and God bless you. Only a very brave and powerful man could have done what you have done. And then all of a sudden, I did not feel brave at all, but very weak and silly, for all I could do was finger my blade and look at the ground. It was Father who spoke, and the interruption helped to dispel my embarrassment. Who are you? he asked. And from where do you come? It is strange to find a young woman wandering about alone at night, but stranger still to hear one who 
dares invoke the forbidden deity. I had not realized until then that she had used his name, but when I did recall it, I could not but glance apprehensively about to see if any others might be around who could have heard. Father and Jim I knew to be safe, for there was a common tie between our families that lay in the secret religious rites we held once each month. Since that hideous day that had befallen even before my father's birth, that day which none dared mention above a whisper, when the clergy of every denomination to the last man had been murdered by order of the twenty-four, it had been a capital crime to worship God in any form whatsoever. We took the girl to the house, and when my mother saw her, and how young and beautiful she was, and took her in her arms, the child broke down and sobbed and clung to mother, nor could either speak for some time. In the light of the candle I saw that the stranger was of wondrous beauty. I have said that my mother was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen, and such is the truth, but this girl who had come so suddenly among us was the most beautiful girl. She was about nineteen, delicately molded and yet without weakness. There were strength and vitality apparent in every move she made as well as in the expression of her face, her gestures, and her manner of speech. She was girlish, and at the same time filled one with an impression of great reserve strength of mind and character. She was very brown, showing exposure to the sun, yet her skin was clear, almost translucent. Her garb was similar to mine, the common garmenture of people of our class, both men and women. She wore the tunic and breeches and boots, just as Mother and Molly and the rest of us did, but somehow there was a difference. I had never before realized what a really beautiful costume it was. The band about her forehead was wider than was generally worn, and upon it were sewn numerous tiny shells, set close together and forming a pattern. It was her only attempt at ornamentation. But even so, it was quite noticeable in a world where women strove to make themselves plain rather than beautiful, some going even so far as to permanently disfigure their faces and those of their female offspring, while others, many, many others, killed the latter in infancy. Molly had done so with two, no wonder that grown-ups never laughed and seldom smiled. When the girl had quieted her sobs on mother's breast, father renewed his questioning, but mother said to wait until morning, that the girl was tired and unstrung and needed sleep. And then came the question of where she was to sleep. Father said that he would sleep in the living room with me and that the stranger could sleep with mother. But Jim suggested that she come home with him, as he and Molly had three rooms, as did we and no one to occupy his living room, and so it was arranged, although I would rather have had her remain with us. At first she rather shrank from going, until Mother told her that Jim and Molly were good, kind-hearted people, and that she would be as safe with them as with her own father and mother. At mention of her parents, the tears came to her eyes, and she turned impulsively toward my mother and kissed her, after which she told Jim that she was ready to accompany him. She started to say goodbye to me, and to thank me again, but having found my tongue at last, I told her that I would go with them as far as Jim's house. This appeared to please her, and so we set forth. Jim walked ahead, and I followed with the girl. And on the way I discovered a very strange thing. Father had shown me a piece of iron once that pulled smaller bits of iron to it. He said that it was a magnet. This slender, stranger girl was certainly no piece of iron, nor was I a smaller bit of anything. But nevertheless, 
I could not keep away from her. I could not explain it. However wide the way was, I was always drawn over close to her, so that our arms touched, and once our hands swung together, and the strangest and most delicious thrill ran through me that I had ever experienced. I used to think that Jim's house was a long way from ours, when I had to carry things over there as a boy, but that night it was far too close. Just a step or two, and we were there. Molly heard us coming, and was at the door full of questionings, and when she saw the girl and heard a part of our story, she reached out and took the girl to her bosom, just as Mother had. Before they took her in, the stranger turned and held out her hand to me. "'Good night,' she said, "'and thank you again, and once more, may God, our Father, bless and preserve you.' And I heard Molly murmur, "'The saints be praised.' And then I turned homeward, treading on air. End of chapter 2